You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information visit commongroundcma.org. So, good morning. Good morning. Um, that little snippet, that little quote, that sometimes we talk about the problem to people more than we talk about the problem to God. You ever, you ever, you, you ever feel that? Um, on Monday? <laughs> and Tuesday? And today? Um, yeah, I know, I know I do. And, uh, today, um, yeah, today I don't want to start that way. Uh, so I'm gonna pray real quick before we jump to the Word of God. Uh, because too often I can just jump in here and not actually address God, and I, I don't, I don't think that I don't, I don't think that's right. Jesus, we come before you, and I just ask that you would speak to us, that you'd send your Spirit to us, that you'd use the, that you'd send the Holy Spirit to, that Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds through the power of your Word. God, we ask that you would move us into your presence, and that you'd speak to us today in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, so I have voices in my head. <laughs> that was my mother who chuckled first, just so you know. She's like, because <laughs> I think she's always had a sneaking suspicion. And you have voices in your head too. And I bet you, you can conjure up all sorts of voices in your head of people in your past. The, the, the sound of a person's voice is incredibly powerful. There used to be this show called This Is Your Life. Um, anybody know that? Raise your hand if you've ever watched This Is Your Life. Raise your hand if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, this is a generational divide. This is a generational divide here, okay? This is your life. What happened in that show, right? Somebody would get up and... Uh, do you, you never watch This Is Your Life? Really? I watch This Is what. Yeah. This Is Your Life. There'd be a person up there, a famous, a famous person, or I guess, was it always famous people? Or was it not so famous people too? And they would bring up and put behind a curtain somebody from their past and they would talk about a story that they remember about that person. And the person would, you'd you'd watch this person's face as they're sitting on stage and their face would tear up or light up or whatever when they heard the voice of this person. Because what they heard was they, when they heard their voice immediately, a memory was all of a sudden bounced up into their head. Uh, The voice is an incredibly powerful thing. Um, we can we can mimic other people's voices. We did this a while ago. It's funny that everybody can do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation. Don't I won't make you do it to each other again. Um, and and there are there are very many different uh, you know accents and things that we can do to manipulate our voice. Some comedians they manipulate voices all the time. And they mimic all kinds of different stuff. You should watch Jim Brewer sometimes. Pretty hilarious. Um, but everybody, I don't know if you knew this. I, I did some research. Everyone has a voice print. Everyone has a voice print. Did you know that? So how we do voice recognition. Everybody has a voice print. It's almost impossible to copy. We tried this once with Laura, actually. Um, if you ever go to our, our website to listen to a sermon, you're going to hear this British computer guy on there who says, This is a message from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. Right? And, uh, and he drains that out. It's the most annoying thing ever. And Nick's got to record one because he's got a great radio voice. But we tried to record one with Laura's voice saying, uh, you're about to listen to a, a sermon from Common Ground Church. And then I was going to change. She didn't want her voice on the internet. So he was going to change her voice. And so I grabbed one of these things and I lowered it and slowed it down. And all of a sudden, like... Um, uh, she kind of sounded like Julia Child and had too much to drink, you know. That, uh, yeah, she's like, 
But she actually, you can you can hear the cadence of her voice, and you're like, that's Laura. Somebody just messed with her voice. Because she has a voice print. You have a voice print. Everybody has a voice print. The human voice is actually quite fascinating. Um, the voice, it, com- it comes from compression of the air in the lungs and passes by folds of skin in your throat, commonly known as vocal cords. But the folds of skin are folded like an accordion across your throat, and you stretch them with tension. Okay, So you can actually feel yourself do this. Everybody's got to do this with me, okay? I want you to get your lowest note possible. Just open your mouth and go, oh. Okay, now it's really creepy. Okay, stop that. <laughs> but there are actually people, I don't know if you knew this, but there's people that do this thing called Truven singing, and I should have pulled up a video of that. It's a Mongolian thing, um, and moved into uh, moved into Alaska, Inuit, uh, Native America, we would call them Native Americans, but Inuit Indians, and they do this thing called Truven singing, where what they do is they go, oh, and then they flap the back of their throat and their uvula and their tongue to make noises on top of it, and they're actually singing three different octaves at the same time. It's crazy. It sounds like a bagpipe. So you can YouTube search this. Make sure you make yourself a note for later. Like text yourself right now. Truven singing. T-R-U-V-A-N. And you'll, have, you'll just be amazed. You'll be like, that's creepy. And what it was, was uh, that, that, tro- that tribal culture uh, thought that singing in multiple octaves was uh, more appealing than singing in a single octave. It was like the original pentatonics. <laughs> Gross. Winter and I have this battle. I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> Um, the, okay, so also, things about the voice. Um, very much about like a reed instrument. Your throat's like a reed instrument. Um, here's some other factoids. I don't know if you know this, but singing is more right-brained, and conversation is more left-brained. So when you converse with somebody, you use the left side of your brain. When you sing, you use the right side of your brain. And for most of you, if you sing, you don't use any part of your brain, so whatever. Um, there's only two singers in recorded music history to have octaves of more than four octaves. Anybody want to guess one? One's a guy, one's a girl. Who said Freddie Mercury? You're wrong. He's only got two, but he's got in- yeah, he's only got two, but he's got incredible intonation and great control over his voice, which is what made him sound amazing. But he's only got two measurable octaves. Anybody else? Go ahead. Sarah Brightman. Wrong. I mean, good try. I don't mean to offend you or anything like that. But you're actually really wrong. Go ahead. No, not Barbara Streisand. Mariah Carey is the girl, four octaves. And Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses has a four octave range, thus proving that you don't actually need physical talent to be an exceptional musician. So, just want you to know that um, they are an incredible part of God's creation. Voices, human voice, and the Word of God actually commands you to use your voice to praise Him well over two hundred fifty times. To command command you to use your voice. I, I've made mention of it here. Um, I noticed, uh, now this is not the problem here, but we do, we used to have this problem in Duluth, because Duluth is in upper Minnesota, and in Minnesota when we were in ministry there, like, there's a lot of Swedes and Norwegians, and they don't have a whole lot of emotion, and apathy's like too much emotion for them, so they just sit there in song, and they're like crossing their arms, and most of the guys are like, mm, can't wait for song time to get over, right? <laughs> and you have to realize, like, we have to realize that the Word of God commands us to praise Him with our voice well over 250 times, and to stand in the presence of God with your arms crossed, not singing. Man, man, that is not something that I would want to do. 
But the voice is so much more complex than that because it involves also hearing and language and interpretation and so on and so on and so on and so on. The voice is an incredibly complicated thing, especially when you consider that not only do you have voices coming from the outside, but you have body language, you have tonality, you have all that stuff, but you also have an interpretive voice in your head. I have an interpretive voice in my head. You have an interpretive voice in your head. When it comes to moral decision making, when it comes to walking through a decision, you have a voice that reasons with you in your head. And for some of you, it actually sounds like something. For me, I think you know what it sounds like. I've mentioned this from the pulpit before. It sounds like my wife. Yeah, actually it does. I have my wife's voice in my head sometimes where where I have to make a decision. Like sometimes if I have to say something in public or whatever, I'll be like, should I say this? And I'll hear Laura's voice in the back of my head. It's not even a voice. It's just her face going, don't do it. Don't do it. Because what I've done, and because because of our relationship, we've talked so much about choices and about morality and all that stuff that I've actually appropriated her voice into my moral conscience. And some of you, you have this, and it's your mother or it's your grandmother or whatever. You know, like Stefan, he's got his uh, he's got his mother that he talks to a lot, and I know that that's probably one of the voices in his head. He probably hears his mother quite often saying things that maybe he doesn't want to hear. And for you, it's one of those things as well. We all have these voices in our head. Mine sometimes make different accents, but today what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk you through Nehemiah in chapter 2. Nehemiah is our study that we're doing for the whole summer. We just started chapter 1 last week, so you have plenty of time to catch up. Please know that if you're going to be here, um, that there are some great resources that we've provided for you in this little handout thingy. um, That There's actually a Bible study guide. You can go day through day, or day by day, through the book of Nehemiah and study during the week. There's a downloadable copy of The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, which pairs really, really well with Nehemiah, and a website linked to the Bible Project, which also is very, very good background information for the Old Testament and where we've come to today. Nehemiah was written, and I promised those of you guys who were here last week, I promised you we're going to do this each week for the next 15 weeks. Um, Nehemiah was written uh, about events that happened about 400 to 500 years before Jesus, about 450 to 500 years before Jesus. Where we find ourselves in Israel's history in the book of Nehemiah is that the Israelites have been exiled. They've been sent away out of the land. And it's a very important time for the nation of Israel, especially if you're trying to figure out what is the nation of Israel like? What is Jerusalem like as Jesus shows up? This is a major turning point in Israel's history because what happens is there's this fierce love of the Word of God, this fierce desire for the Word of God, and to protect ourselves from not disobeying God to be exiled again, and with that we see the rise of the Pharisees who are starting to protect people from the Word of God. So this is like, this is kind of the foundation piece that we're reading in Nehemiah and Ezra. We're reading about this, and this is the foundation piece where the Pharisees come, which is a very active part of Jesus' ministry. However, we also need to know the history of Israel. So if you've got your little handout thingy on the side, there's some icons that are here because I'm going to remind you of this each week so that you know the story of the Old Testament because I don't want to assume that everybody knows. And so you've got all of these points here. And the first one is creation. The second one is fall. The third one is nations. The fourth one is captivity. The fifth one is the uh, exodus. The uh, sixth one is the wanderings. The seventh is the promised land. Eighth are the judges. Ninth are the kings. The next one's exile. And then finally the return. We made up some hand motions to go along 
struggling with this because we need to channel our inner VBS. So, were you guys ready for it? Here's here's the deal. So, creations like this. You got to do this with the creation. Okay, so we got creation, and we've got fall, then we've got nations like the stars, right? Nations. Look at everybody's doing it. I love it. Then you have captivity. Right, and then you have well, what was the signal for the uh, ex- oh yeah that's right it's a Jamin thing Exodus right and then wanderings because we don't do that with one finger it's creepy if you do it with one finger so the whole hand okay <laughs> it's fine and then promised land and then the judges and then the kings and then the exile and then the return right so come on back and so we're going to do this really fast. Ready? Let's just go through it. So we got creation, fall, nations, captivity, exodus, wandering, promised land, judges, kings, exile, and return. That's everything up until Nehemiah from Genesis all the way through Nehemiah. And what you're doing is I'm getting you to practice this so that you know the story. So if you hear something like, okay, where was Moses? Well, Moses was responsible for the Exodus 10 commandments. You know you can go right to that point in the story and you know what's coming up next is the wandering, the promised land, the judges, and the kings. Okay, And you can see that in your head. In Nehemiah, the issue is that the people failed to listen to God's word, failed to listen to God's voice. And because they failed to listen to God's voice, they weren't obeying the Lord and they got exiled because of that. I mean, and we're talking hundreds of years of him warning them saying, hey, listen, return, listen to my voice and return to me and I will keep you here. But if you do not listen, you do not return, then I will exile you. And they did not listen. The prophets came over and over and over and over again, speaking the same message, return to me, listen to my word or you will be exiled. And they're exiled, okay? And then as they begin to learn and listen to God's word again, and as their hearts are broken, we see Ezra and Nehemiah, the the Lord moves and they return back to Jerusalem. It's a pretty big deal. This leads them to a place where they found themselves kind of at uh, odds with God Almighty during the exile. And the issue is, the, the issue became front and center of whose voice are you going to listen to? What voice is going to be the loudest one in your life? Are, is it going to be God's word or is it going to be the nations around you? Which is what originally tripped them up. When the nations said, hey, come worship our God. Our God's pretty good for that stuff. You can worship your God too. It's okay. And they listened to the words of the nations and failed uh, to follow God's word and God exiled them. Now this, this, this idea is something we struggle with every day. We have these voices in our heads and voices from outside of our heads. We have all these different voices coming in. And the question remains for us, which is going to be the loudest voice in our head? And there are several candidates, and we're going to walk through the book of Nehemiah here, or the chapter, chapter 2, and I'm going to show you this as we're walking through this. And so grab your Bible, turn to Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible, I would tell you there are some under the chairs, but we did not get them out, so they're in the back over there. You can go grab one, or somebody like Creedon will get you one. Huh? Not You're it. Go. Don't be a teenager. Do it. Look at it. Love it. Good job. I will exile you if you don't obey my word. Okay, sorry. Uh, Okay, here we go. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, we got to stop here because I forgot to remind you what we learned last week. We learned last week that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king is probably third highest, about third highest person in the kingdom as far as power goes. He is actually the, the watch guard over the king's life. Okay, the king trusts him as, uh, as an, he, he trusts him, excuse me, he trusts him with his life. 
And so that's why he's grabbing wine, just so you know. And, uh, yeah, whatever. Anyways, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So we're going to start right, just stop right there for just a second. I'm going to walk you through what just happened. So Nehemiah is taking wine for the king and he's he's sipping it and he's uh, the king's watching him, watching the look on his face. Now this is what the cupbearer does. He takes wine and then the king looks at him and goes, okay, is it poison? Is he going to die? Is he going to keel over? Is it good? What's going on here? And as he watches his face, his face is sad and Nehemiah says, I have not even been sad before the king before. And so the king says to him, well, why are you so sad? This is sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, but I still said, but I also said, but I said to the king, and then he speaks to the king. And this would be where I would say is the first voice that might be a candidate for the loudest voice in our head. Nehemiah's voice in his own head happens right here. The king replies to him, and there's almost this pause in the action and this thought process where he goes, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king anyways. And then he opens his mouth. See, the voice of you inside of your head is is one that is very real. It's one that's there. You will do a lot of self-talk. In fact, you listen to yourself and the own, your, your own voice in your head probably more than you listen to anybody else's voice. But the voice of you is usually a fear-inducing voice. It is generally speaking a voice that is measuring all of the I can'tness around. It measures all of the this doesn't make any senseness around. This voice is not a great voice to actually listen to, even though we think that we are right all of the time. The Bible says, what about the heart? The heart is deceitful above all things. And so your own heart, your own voice inside of your head, generated by your heart, generated by your mind, is going to lie to you. Now this rubs kind of against our American Western skepticism. Because we kind of live in these glass castles where we're like, you know what, I know best, I know wisest, I know most, you can't convince me otherwise. It's my truth, not your truth. And the moment we do that is the moment where we start to listen to that voice that comes out of the deceitful heart that lies to us. The voice inside our head that is us is not generally a great voice to listen to if you're going to really follow anything that God says. Why? Because God's word often does not make sense in the practical way. God says, hey, pack up, go all the way across to a, in fact, I was going to show a story of a missionary, pack up, go to a, um, go to a cannibalistic culture where they're going to, uh, you know, possibly uh, kill you and eat you, even though that's not necessarily what cannibals do, but that's what they thought. But this cannibalistic culture lied all the time. They had a different animistic, t- um, different animistic uh, worldview, all of that stuff. Go to this culture, Just pack up, leave your family, go to this culture. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The voice in your head is going to say things like, you know, God, I don't think you thought this through all that well. It's not the best voice to listen to. The voice in your head is most often the voice of self-preservation and self-exaltation. And so that's why it's not necessarily the best voice to listen to. It will keep you safe, but it may not keep you close to God. But Nehemiah has some courage and he says here anyways, 
But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. See the internal monologue that's going on here? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, so double the pressure, now you get the queen sitting there too, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide for me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. So this transaction happens between Nehemiah and the king, and, and he prays to God. You see that internal monologue where he's like, you know what, I'm really afraid. I'm going to say this thing. The king's going to ask me a question. He's like, okay, i got to pray. Jesus, help me. Okay, now i got to speak. And this is all in real time that's happening. But this also raises another voice, because not only is there the voice inside of Nehemiah's head, but he's talking to a voice of authority that's outside of him. And these exist everywhere in your culture. Some of, uh, in our culture, some of them uh, pull you over when you're speeding. That's a voice of an authority. Some of them um, make decisions on what your taxes are going to do. Some of them make all kinds of decisions for your life. Some of them just put down your life on a schedule that you obey each and every week in exchange for a paycheck. Those are people who are authorities in your life, and they have voices that speak into your life. Now, the voice of the authority is not necessarily always right. Not necessarily always right. Your bo- you can probably think about this. Your boss at work, are they always right all the time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mine is, because mine's Jesus. Who's kidding? It is, but I'm not just kidding about that. But they don't necessarily know exactly everything that's going on. I actually do have another boss besides Jesus. His name's Jonathan. He's a district superintendent. And sometimes, I, I mean, I go, I go to him all the time for advice. Do I take all of his counsel? No, not necessarily. Am I okay with disagreeing with him? Well, actually, it's a little intimidating. But I do do it from time to time. But he carries a certain authority with him, and his authority can represent to me a direction. It can represent to me a a certain direction of where I can't go and where I can go. And this is really rough for Americans because, because for us, there is no higher authority than us. There is no higher authority than us. We were, our, our whole foundation of our country was built off of this idea that we have no king and we will not have we, we don't want a ruler, we're going to rule ourselves. And so this idea is we've we've in, we've appropriated this into our culture that we are the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong. But God's word tells us in Romans thirteen, in, in quite a few other areas actually, that the authorities are placed above us for the good of the church. Now uh, Paul writes Romans thirteen under Nero, who's not a great guy and is killing Christians. And And he has the courage to pen that all authority has been placed by God for the good of the church. And that we are to submit to it and obey it. Now, does that mean that they needed to obey Caesar when he said worship worship Caesar alone? No. But they were to submit to his authority. There's a distinct difference between obedience and submission. Submission is oftentimes obeying obeying the consequences of the authority that's laid out in front of you as you follow your conscience towards God. But these authorities stand there as a means that God uses for our good. And sometimes they can act as a directing voice. And sometimes they can act as a voice of of opposition that we have to prayerfully consider what we're doing. 
There's a distinction between authority and moral rightness. We follow God primarily. We follow God's voice. Okay? But we must submit to the authorities that God placed above us. So there's the voice of me that's telling me one thing. The voice of the authorities that sometimes can be telling me another thing. But let's continue. There's more to this. Verse 8. So may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall. And then I love this. And for the house I'm going to occupy. He actually asks him for wood to build his own house. I love that. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Which is, I mean, just think about that. He's like, hey, can I have a little bit of wood so I can build a house? He's like, here you go. Here's the $250,000 home. It's pretty great. It's a house for you. It's an Oprah moment, right? House for you and a house for you. <laughs> so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king also had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So not only is the voice of the authority behind him, but the arm of the authority is with him. And in verse 10, when Sanballat, Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after praying there three, excuse me, after staying there three days, I set out uh, during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no, uh, there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Those are some fancy places, I'm sure. <laughs> examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Here enters a whole other voice. Okay, here enters a whole other voice. And it's the voice of the ones you are responsible to, or you are leading, or you are serving. Nehemiah approaches this situation and there's a whole other group of people with a voice that he's got to deal with. And it's the people who are living there. It's the people who are living there. Now, this is an interesting voice actually because in our culture, in American culture, we think that uh, the democratic rule is the best voice of them all. But actually, almost in every scenario is the mob right. If you think about anything... You think about protests, you think about what happens to a mob. All it takes is one or two, one or two bad voices, one or two negative voices, one or two chants towards something that is uh, one or two, one or two people to start throwing firebombs. And next thing you know, it's a riot. Mob mentality is not always the correct one. Although it's good to listen to other people, although it's especially good to listen to people you may have authority over or you're responsible to, to let them dictate where they're going would be absolutely insane. Because people in a mob don't tend to actually think too well. They tend to listen to all of the voices around them. You have to check with the masses, but not actually before you have a direction. 
This is what Nehemiah does. He's got a direction that he's prayed through. He's sought some things. He's looked for wisdom. He's working at some direction. And then he goes in and he checks with the people as opposed to letting the people determine the direction in which he's going to go. Because generally speaking, they will take the easiest route out. This is how we operate under the principle of what's called delegated authority. Everyone is, um, everyone is someone who's under someone. I have authority that I report to, the elders, my district superintendent, district executive committee, national office, and Jesus. We recognize this idea of the fact that we actually answer to people, and there are people not only that we answer to, but we have to answer to other people. And as we look at that voice, all those voices, it can get awfully confusing. And so Nehemiah here, he goes out on his own because he's clearing out those voices and he's seeking the direction. Then he comes to them and he communicates to them because he's a good leader. He's not just going to start doing stuff and say, get along with it. He actually says to them, you see what kind of trouble we're in? And then what he does is he also tells them the story of what God has done so that it helps them to see that God is behind them. He provides for them actual evidence that God is moving with them. And then it continues here. Verse 19, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We'll, we his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, there's another voice that happens all the time, something that you hear all the time, the voice of the naysayer. Nay, nay, nay. Don't, don't, don't. You really shouldn't. Hey, have you thought about this? Hey, just so you know. Those are the things that often the naysayer tends to say. These are the ones who just have to stand in the way verbally. And sometimes it's out of pride, and sometimes it's out of fear of losing something, or sometimes whatever the motivation, the naysayer tends to feel this responsibility to have to correct everyone around them and stand in the way going, nope, nope, that's not right, nope, just have you considered this? Look at my opinion, look at my opinion, look at my opinion, look at my opinion. And the naysayer, out of even some good motivation, will be the one who stands in the way saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? These guys don't have good motivation. We found out their motivation was they were upset that somebody was fighting for the Jews and fighting for the city of Jerusalem. And they stand in the way going, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? What are you doing? Stop this. And they're the naysayers who are the ones who are trying to stop the work by standing in the way. This voice exists all over the place. And I think you can think of people in your own life who would fall as the naysayer. They're usually, usually people that are, and I hate to even say this because this is the one that hurts and steps on my own toes. They're the skeptics, the rationalists, the sarcastic ones. I don't know if you know this, Greek is, uh, excuse me, sarcasm is Greek from sarcazine, which is to tear at the flesh, to rip your flesh apart. It's a linguistic tool, but at the bottom of it is saying what you don't mean or meaning what you don't say. And it can it can become the beginnings of bitterness, and and it's a tool that naysayers use all the time. Or complaining. Now, complaining is an interesting one. Like complaining, you can actually rewire your brain to complain. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the more you complain, the more your brain makes connections to see negative stuff and things. 
and you begin to vocalize it, and it rewires your brain that as you see things, you're going, uh-uh-uh, 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 no, 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 no. And sometimes it starts, uh, starts young, or starts as a young age, starts out of good motivation, but it can, it can pull into this all kinds of stuff. And even Philippians tells us to do all things without complaining or grumbling so that we might shine like stars in a crooked and lost generation. I hate that because, guess what? I'm a skeptic. I raise my children off of sarcasm and public shame. And I complain all the time. Which means I might have the qualifications of a naysayer. But also related to the naysayer, here's the voice of the enemy. The voice of the enemy is going to tell you all that you can't do, and not only all that you can't do, but why you can't do it. And who you're not. That you're not loved by God enough. That you're not secure in His salvation. That He's not good enough to supply for you. That He's not going to protect you. That you're not going anywhere. The enemy is ultimately the ultimate naysayer. And then there's one last voice here in verse 20. When he answers them, and you might answer saying, the God of heaven will give us success, but we, are, we His servants will start rebuilding. And we can read that real calmly, but I'm guessing he's replying back to Sanballat because you're going to see later on in the last chapters, he actually whoops these guys pretty good. But I'm guessing he's saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are His servants and we will start rebuilding, right? I mean, that is the bold voice of one who's empowered by the Spirit of God. And we have those voices sometimes out there, the bold voice empowered by the Spirit of God saying, we will do this. God will watch out for us. We will go after this. It will happen because I've read the Word of God and I've seen Him move and I will go with Him. When he says things like in Matthew twenty four fourteen that the nation will go, the, excuse me, the gospel will go forth to, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, and people look at that and go, "All right, I got a job to do. I'm going to the nations and I'm telling them about Jesus because that's the only way the end's coming." Those are the people who have this powerful, empowered Spirit of God voice that is a bold voice, who has seen God confidently has seen God move and will confidently act on that. Someone who has seen and can testify to what the Lord has called them to and to the ways that He has shown up in their lives. That's a powerful voice. And if you find people like that in your life, cling to them with all you got and walk with them because they will push you further and deeper and longer and faster into the love and the grace of Jesus Christ as you walk across this world. So this all wraps up with, there's one other voice that I think is the biggest candidate for the loudest voice, and this is one that has been throughout here as Nehemiah has been testifying to what God's doing, and that's the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord, of course, is the loudest one, and and how do you listen to the voice of the Lord? There's a whole bunch of really whacked out, weird theology out there about how you listen to the voice of the Lord. Some people say, no, it's this inner whisper. This inner whisper. It's not an inner whisper, okay? God's voice is not an inner whisper. Some people say, oh, God's voice is what you can hear from uh, all your friends at church. You ever been to church? It's a messy place. might not be the right voice. The voice of the Lord, and this is the way I kind of teach it, it has a source. Just like you were doing the, oh, thing where we're all creepy, right? Like the voice of the Lord, the breath of God that's forced past the vocal cords, the source of it is the Word of God itself. It's this. The Word of God. This is why we read this. It's not because we read it because, you know, well, it's just uh, helpful for every day and our daily bread. That's a great reason. But this is the voice of the Lord recorded in something you can carry around in a backpack. And we get to be able to look at this and know the God of the universe and hear His voice. That is the source of His voice. 
But there's more than just breath when you make a word, right? There's also these vocal cords that, that are the things that actually create the sound. And there's more than, the Word of God is certainly sufficient and He communicates through that. But additionally, we also have been given the experience of God's people as they see Him move throughout all of history. The experience of God's people as we see Him move. These are like the circumstances in our life. People get, like Stephen was just talking about, he's been in the Word of God for, you know, 90 plus days, and there have been people around him going, you might want to think about this, you might want to think about this, you might want to think about this, you might want to think about this. The Word of God will tell you to use your spiritual gifts, right? That's not something that Stephen made up. That's something that the Word of God's going to tell him to do, and you to do. Use your spiritual gifts. But the experience of the people of God around him are telling him all in one direction, hey, try this, hey, try this, hey, try this. Does that mean it's going to all work out? No. Does it mean that if he steps out in faith and trusts God, it's going to go you know, just swimmingly? No. It's actually going really horribly wrong and you're going to get chewed up in it. That's great. But the people and the experience that God has put around you, is the, it's like the motivation to listen to the Word of God. It's not the Word of God itself, but certainly motivation. Somebody can step alongside you and say, hey, have you ever considered going across the world to go experience another culture? Well, no, I have not. Well, let's do that. A voice from one of God's people can drag you into something that God's Word has already been telling you to do. And then the last thing is the movement of God in history. As we look across all of the scope of history, both personal, public, the movement of God throughout all of history, the experiential moving of God, that's like the confidence, the decision-making of like, okay, I'm motivated. Okay, I heard the Word of God. I read this thing, and now I've got some motivation because somebody's telling me to do this, but I'm really scared, right? And then somebody goes, yeah, but look at this is what happened to me, and this is what happened to me, and this is what happened to this person, and this is how God took care of them. And finally you have the confidence to go, okay, I heard that loud and clear. Now I can go. Those three things are a really powerful, really powerful way to hear God's voice in your life. These form a powerful, bold, risk-taker, kind of backed-by-experience, truth-and-history type of faith. So when I say, when is the last time you heard God's voice? I don't mean when is the last time you read God's Word. I actually do mean that. Like, when's the last time you read God's Word? But I'm also talking about when's the last time you read God's Word, you sought after His will, you listened to His people, and you measured all of the ways that He worked throughout history, and then you followed. When's the last time? When's the last time? Unfortunately, I think we just sit and we tend to languish in faithlessness, and we wonder why God's not speaking. God has spoken. People have surrounded. He's shown Himself in history. And the hard part is, is often if we just resist all of that, it's not that God's voice stops speaking, it's that our ears get real hard. And our hearts get real shrouded and clouded. So today, I simply just want to ask you, Will you ask God to speak to you using His Word and His people and history? Will you ask God to speak to you? Don't ask God to speak to you if you don't intend to listen. Don't ask God to speak to you if you don't intend to listen. If you ask God to speak to you and don't intend to listen, that's like standing in God's presence with your arms crossed not singing. Don't do it. Don't do it. 
But if you want to listen to the voice of the Lord, if you actually would, I mean, and just be honest with yourself, if you actually would love to just see Him work and move and draw you into all kinds of crazy, crazy things, ask Him to speak, ask Him to surround you with His people, and ask Him to show you how He's moved throughout history. But don't pray it if you don't mean it. Lord Jesus, we come before You and we just ask that You would speak through the power of Your Word. That You would clarify Your Word by surrounding us with people who, can't let, who won't let us get away from the Word that You've planted inside of us. And that You will give us the confidence and motivation to walk steadfastly with You because we've seen You do it over and over again. Lord, I just love the fact that in my own life, every time we've stepped out in faith, You've just taken care of things over and over again and know it's not been easy and know it's not been perfect, but You have been there and we have seen You move in ways that I cannot explain any other way besides the sovereign hand of the Lord moving in my life. And that gives us confidence to be able to help other people move. And so I pray for my friends here that as we listen to Your Word, as as we listen to the things that You're saying to us, as we invite You to speak to us through the power of Your Word and to clarify that through people and to give us this, this motivation by seeing Your sovereign hand throughout history that things will change in our lives and we will change and we will go and we will move and we will see You work. And that once and for all we will see the Great Commission come to fruition where we see that you, as we go and we make disciples, and baptize them. We will behold You until the coming day. We will see You. I pray that we will do that, Lord. As we sing this song, I pray that this would be our prayer to ask You to speak. We love You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.